0: Welcome to Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino.
1: And I'm Andrea Parkins.
0: Each week, we'll be having fun and candid conversations with chefs, journalists, food lovers, and kitchen experts from around the world.
1: And we'll also be joined by food suppliers, farmers, producers of the ingredients to talk about how they're made, why the chefs like working with them, and how they're using them in their kitchens today.
0: This week, we will be talking about an ingredient that's very near and dear to me, and that ingredient is ricotta cheese.
1: I love ricotta cheese.
0: Doesn't everybody love ricotta cheese?
1: My mom does not like ricotta cheese. Really? When I told her we were doing this episode, she sent me the vomit emoji.
0: You got hate mail from your mom because <laughs> of we were doing ricotta cheese? I don't know that I've really spoken to a lot of people about whether they love or hate ricotta cheese. I, it's in so many things. It's so uh, versatile in the kitchen.
1: Sweet, savory. There's so many applications for it. I think there's certain dishes that people don't even realize there's ricotta cheese in it.
0: Stuffed pasta. I mean, I think everybody thinks about lasagna. Mm -hmm. I think everybody thinks about manicotti, ravioli. What about the stuffed shell? I love
1: a stuffed shell. When's the last time
0: you had a stuffed shell? I haven't had a stuffed shell in years.
1: Since I was a kid.
0: Really? Well, it's not been that long for me. But then you're much younger than me, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're only talking a few years for you. Five years ago. You, yeah. yeah. Um, a cannoli.
1: I do not like cannoli.
0: What are you talking about?
1: I don't like and them. I think they're always so sweet. call yourself half Italian? I know. I,
0: I bet there's a lot of people that don't even know that cannolis are filled with a ricotta cheese.
1: They are. It's a ricotta and pistata. So if
0: called. you were thinking a couple of seconds ago that you don't like ricotta cheese, but you like cannolis, guess what?
1: You like ricotta?
0: Yeah. You sure? Your mom doesn't like cannolis? Is that... <laughs> I have to ask her. I
1: don't yeah, know. Yeah,
0: exactly. I
1: like a ricotta cheesecake.
0: Oh, yeah. I like that too.
1: Or a ricotta pie, like at Easter.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to have an incredible, and I mean incredible, chef this week.
1: I'm really excited Her name about this is month.
0: Missy Robbins, and she'll be joining us. She is the owner of Lilia and Missy Restaurants, and she also has a really kick-ass retail store called MP Provisions. Am Mm -hmm. I saying that right? Yeah, MP. MP Foods.
1: Missy Pasta.
0: Have you tried? I know you've tried, actually. I'm not going to say have you tried. She brought us a gift basket with this whipped ricotta. Heavenly. Who knew you could just take ricotta and whip it up and it becomes this whole other thing?
1: It tastes like ricotta, but it's not like texturally. It almost like messes with your mind a little bit because it's so smooth. It's so creamy and luscious. And I mean, I would probably eat that on anything. Yeah, just as
0: long as your mom's not there. (laughs) But so Andrea and I made lunch and we took ricotta. Well, first we took bread, right?
1: Yes, we to- we grilled yep. a whole bunch of bread because we knew we wanted to kind of have a crostini lunch.
0: Yeah. I lo- You know, it's one of my favorite things to make in the kitchen mm-hmm. because you can do so many different types of toppings in one session. So one of the signature dishes at Missy, that's M-I-S-I, the restaurant in Williamsburg, is this whipped ricotta on a beautiful piece of artisanally baked bread.
1: She said that she just takes the ricotta and puts it in a roboku or, or a food processor until it kind of becomes this like velvety texture. I mean, I've made ricotta cheese in culinary school. I don't know how she gets it to become this.
0: It becomes otherworldly. Yes, It's so delicate and beautiful and smooth. It almost looks like it has the texture of the best gelato you've ever seen.
1: There's like a sheen to it. Yeah.
0: Yes. I'm going to try that. Take the ricotta, put it in the food processor, whip it up.
1: And, you know, she will only use Calabro ricotta.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I I know. I remember there's a lot of chefs. We have chefs in Los Angeles and Texas and all over the country. We have to fly the Calabro ricotta to them.
1: Yeah, we, we actually have Morena from Calabro on today to talk to us about Calabro cheese, how they're making it, what makes it really special and So delicious. Morena is the vice president of sales.
0: I love Morena.
1: And I'm excited that Missy is going to have the opportunity to ask her questions about her favorite cheese and make everybody want to salivate and eat lots of ricotta.
0: Universes will collide.
1: This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media.
0: We are thrilled to have Missy Robbins here today in the studio, in the flesh, in person. So excited. She's one of the most incredible chefs I know and a friend. Happy to have you here.
1: So happy to be here. When John asked you to be on the podcast and he said, what do you want to talk about?
2: He actually didn't even ask me what I wanted to talk about. We were texting or something and I was like, can we talk about calabra ricotta? For anyone who knows my cooking, I use it in a lot of... A lot of ways. Their ricotta cheese is just dynamite. I don't even understand what they do still to this day. But I do know that I've been using it probably since, like, my Soho Grand days. Which, by the way, no one even knows I worked at the Soho Grand. So that's a story for another day. When I moved to Chicago to be the chef of Spiaggio with Tony Montuano, I was like, I'm so sorry, but we have to change ricottas. And he's like, what? And I was like, "Now there's this ricotta. It's from East Haven, Connecticut, not far from where I grew up. And I've been using it for many years and it's the only ricotta I want to use. I got someone to bring it to us, but it cost like twice as much in Chicago as it did in in New York because it's obviously not there.
0: I mean, what is the magic about Calabro? We have customers in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. who, like you just said, you had to have it in Chicago. They have to have it in Los Angeles. They won't use anything but Calabro.
2: The magic for me is texture and flavor. And there is a richness, a creaminess, a heft. That's it, and it's consistent. I mean, I've never gotten a batch of Calabra where I've been like, eh, I don't think this is working today, or something happened in the factory. And also, there's just, to me, a personal connection that it's from East Haven, Connecticut. And I believe the son, who now runs it, I I don't know him, but I do believe he went to Georgetown, which I also went to Georgetown. There's just like, to me, there's that connection, but from a product perspective, perspective, I mean, I've tasted hundreds of ricottas. I mean, hundreds. I've just never tasted anything like it. There's something very nostalgic also about the packaging and about the branding. And that and describe,
1: Yeah, describe the packaging for everybody. So
2: the packaging, you know, they have a huge line of products, mm-hmm. but what I use is that is the hand-dipped ricotta, which essentially is they're packing it into these tins that have holes on the bottom, and they have, like, really old-school Italian-vibe Branding logo that, you know, I'm very into that. I just brought you a bunch of packaged goods from our company. You'll see how like I love sort of old school meets new school. It makes you feel at home to me. It feels fresh and like someone took a lot of care to put that in a package. I have no idea how it's done. I haven't been to their warehouse, their plant. I would love to go there. Um, maybe you'll take me. Yeah, to we gotta do a field do that. trip. What I think is interesting
1: about the way they package and like kind of nostalgic in a way. So they call it like a hand dipped cone. Yeah. It looks like an ice cream cone on top. Yeah. For me, it like obviously brings back like childhood memories. And I actually think I could eat it like ice cream. Balsamic glaze on it. To me, that's how good this ricotta is.
0: Clearly, there's not a lot you need to do with this product. Yeah. No. It speaks for itself. That ricotta toast that you do at Missy. Andrew, have you seen what she does? They, they
1: <laughs> I saw it on... Yes. It's, it's really the silliest thing ever. It's stunning.
0: How does ricotta figure into Missy and Lilia?
1: I looked at your account, the Chef's Warehouse database. Oh. <laughs> you have purchased... <laughs> don't tell me. I don't want to know. 2,500 three-pound ricotta cones in the month.
0: What are you doing with all that 2, ricotta?
2: 2,500 in this month. You ordered 30 pounds the other day. We use it as... The whipped ricotta. So that dish started out as grilled marinated peppers with whipped ricotta toast. It became this thing, the most Instagram thing at Missy. To me, it's just like how I want to eat. I want to take like a little toast and put ricotta. And I have always like kind of manipulated ricotta into different textures, whether it's like putting it through a tammy, and like getting it a little smoother or throwing it in a roboku to whip it. Everyone thinks that I do something crazy. I'm just putting it in a I, I Honestly, I'm taking it to the right texture. That's right for us. And I can tell you there are days when it's not right. You know, I used to just try and like seek peppers, whatever pepper, like if Nardello's went out of season, I would do Shishito's. And I really just like decided I didn't like doing that. I just wanted to do it in season when I could get the best of the best peppers during the summer and early fall. We've been doing it with grilled apricots and grilled nectarines and like all these different things. And no matter what I sell it with, I could sell it with nothing and we would still sell like 60 to 70 a day.
0: Is there anything that ricotta doesn't pair well with, in your opinion? Not really. It's kind of. Not really. I mean, it's great. It's
2: like great with cured meat. It's great with fruits. It's great with vegetables. I don't know how to eat ricotta with chicken. I don't think it pairs well with chicken, but I'm sure there's a way you can do it. We also use it as in almost every filling I do. So even if it doesn't say ricotta filling, our spinach tortelli at Missy is a combination of ricotta, mascarpone, and spinach and brown butter. At Lilia, we say sheep's milk cheese, and it's really a combination of feta and whipped ricotta. It was weird to say feta, but there's this cheese from Sardinia, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They brine very similarly to feta, and it's not. we don't have it here. Mm -hmm. And so when I was researching this dish for the opening of Lilia, for the agnolotti dish, which is now our highest- seller ever just above Malfadini. I was like, how do I get that kind of like tang and saltiness, but I don't want to call it feta. So we combine them. So like I have it hidden aside from the ricotta toast and we also sell it. You know, we started this specialty company in, in February 2020 called MP um, and we sell the whipped ricotta now in a little like piping bag so people can do it at home themselves. Like on the couch while you're watching television? Yes. Just like piping it yes. in your um, mouth.
0: I'm yep. so excited about this. Um,
2: I'm just using it in a lot in a lot a lot, a lot, a lot of places.
0: <laughs> Twenty five hundred pounds a, a month. It's yeah. definitely going somewhere. I want to jump back because there's so many things we just mentioned that are exciting to me. You grew up in New Haven, outside New Haven, just outside the, New the suburbs. Haven. Andrea and I love talking about pizza. So Let's you grew up it, in a guys. pizza Let's mecca.
2: Give it to me. What is your favorite Connecticut pizza? Hands down, Sally's. Sally's.
0: She's a hands down Sally's. Okay. And I'm I a love
2: hands down Sally's. I am a second is modern. Okay. Um, and I started going to modern like way later in life. We started going to modern. And it's very different from Sally's. It's like a, just a different experience. And obviously like Pepe's is great. If you grew up in New Haven, you are you have a loyal thing to one or the other. But I'm a
0: parties guy.
2: Okay. Just went to parties for, for the first time last summer. Mm-hmm. The fennel sausage... One I I got to say is is great parties is cool. They make Zup- the sausage in house, right?
0: They do. And I'm going to tell you why I like parties cuz you mentioned the 4 hour line. I can't stand waiting in line for food. We don't food. wait in lines. And typically when I'm going to New Haven for pizza, I'm usually on my way to Boston or somewhere yeah. for work, and parties for me is an easy on off the highway. There's rarely a line there. Yeah. And then the other thing that was mentioned earlier, I love talking pizza anytime. Spiaggia which was the most iconic Chicago restaurant for Italian cuisine and a lot of great chefs came out of that restaurant, obviously including yourself, but it just closed. I just saw the headline.
2: Yeah, it was like an emotional moment. Like, I definitely teared up. They had a 36-year run. It's incredible. And all these chefs have come out of Spiaggia, but the coolest thing to come out of Spiaggia is the kinship of the people that, that work there. So on that day that they announced the closing, I mean... There was so much Instagramming of old pictures and text between all of us. So Spiaggia is a special, like a really special place. And it cha- obviously changed my career at the time that I went there. I had been at the Soho Grand for three and a half years and I was t- fairly miserable.
0: Did you know you wanted to cook Italian at, I mean, let's back up again a little bit going back to you know, the New Haven, Connecticut, you grew up, it wasn't an Italian family. A Connecticut-born woman becomes, what again, what I consider one of the greatest Italian chefs. You can
2: say a Jewish, Eastern European, no Italian roots. It's okay, John, you can say it. No,
0: I don't mind. <laughs> you, you grow up, Jewish family. We're finding a lot but of... Jews you know, and Italians,
1: because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pizza bagel, they're very, very similar.
0: Yeah, well, I'm finding that there are so many great Jewish... Italian chefs in the United States and maybe around the world that I don't know about. But when you start to run the list of Nancy Silverton, Dan Richer, missy robbins jonathan waxman where does it come from
2: part of it is the upbringing living in a world where italian american was always there and that's what i thought of as italian food but also when i started cooking and i was sort of in that came up in that new american world and rosenzweig arcadia lobster club Mm -hmm. wayne nish march and like sort of where it was eclectic but the ingredients Like Wayne used to pull in like incredible Italian ingredients. Like I remember specifically he used to have this lemon oil he would use. Um, and great olive oils, and I was turned on by by those. I was turned on by ricotta cheese. I was turned on by great mozzarella. I went to Italy to cook for six months when I was 28, and then when it came time to kind of choose, like, I had a fear of French kitchens. I had never worked in a real French kitchen in, in New York or D.C. or anywhere that I had worked, and so to me, I felt like Italy was going to be this homier place, and so I went to Italy and I spent this time there, and I worked in three different regions, and I really began to understand regional Italian cooking. I worked in Tuscany, Emilia Romagna, and Friuli, and Friuli is like really did it for me. I worked in a one-star Michelin restaurant there. I mean, my mind was blown. I was like, "Huh, you're serving smoked pork loin over sauerkraut? I didn't know that that even existed. I didn't know that Italy was really twenty cuisines,
0: so regionally uh, distinct. Yeah, so you were so almost in the Austrian-Germany yes. part of the country. Yeah, yeah,
2: and the language was Austrian-German. They would scream at me. I, had, I went to Emilia-Romagna first and then Tuscany, and I just started to, like, finally start to grasp the language. I had no formal training. I had a dictionary. I learned, so by the time I, like, got to Friuli, I was like, oh, I can get by every day, sort of. I couldn't have, like, a conversation like this, but I could, like, get to the train station. I could order my water. I could order my food. And... I got to Friuli and they started speaking to me and I was like, huh? And it sounds like they're speaking German and they would like scream at me. I'd be like, I don't know, Capito, no Capito. And they'd be like, you understand what you want to understand. And I'm like, no, I actually don't understand you. Um, It's like one of my favorite stories to tell. It was an awesome experience, but also terrifying. And then I came home. Once you go through like an adventure like that, I was 28. You're very open-minded. So when I came home, I was like, oh, I'll go to Vegas. I'll go to San Francisco. I'll do whatever because I'm adventurous. And then I was getting offered all these jobs in New York at Italian places. And I was like, I'm not quite ready for the pigeonhole. I don't know that this is exactly what I want to do. And... Then I talked to John, and he convinced me to go to the Soho Grand, and then Spiagia just made sense to me. I really needed to get back into fine dining, and I had become a chef de cuisine. So I was in this, like, weird place because I was in a chef de cuisine, but I was in this, like, hipster hotel, and I had taken myself out of the New York fine dining kind of circle, and I was like, no one's going to hire me here as at, at this level. And so I was, like, at this weird place, Place you felt like you had to leave in order to like. Get I to don't the next think level? I like consciously knew that, but mm-hmm. I knew that when Tony offered me the job at Spiaggia, that I'd be really dumb not to take it. Yeah, and there was a huge learning curve. Like you go in as a chef de cuisine, and then they change my title to executive chef for structural company reasons very quickly. But there's like a. Th- cloud over you that comes with that title and in a four star restaurant. and I felt behind. I was like terrified. And then I'd like cook the food. Spiage has a cafe too, much more rustic. And that was really easy for me and came very naturally. I learned there, like my style landed at a voce kind of right in between the dining room. And the cafe and it wasn't quite as fancy, but it was still like really refined, but it had some rusticity to it. But I didn't ever want anyone to call my food rustic. I was like very set on that. Once you have that in you, like I don't know how to uncook Italian. There are other things I'm interested in. I love at home experimenting with Middle Eastern flavors and cuisine and technique. I don't know a ton about it, but that I would say like if I ever went in a different direction from Italian or I opened something else, like that's what would excite me the most. Anything that has a cultural perspective is what I love. Doing new American food is great, but it doesn't have that like perspective where you get to research and learn and understand why this It doesn't ricotta, have like those roots. It doesn't have the roots and I think that's what turned me on a lot to Italian food when I started at Spiaggia. Like I I read a lot. I just read cookbooks.
0: Everything you just said, it's a the Italian food is very soulful. I think Mediterranean food and and Middle Eastern food is also very there's there's a certain something about it mm-hmm. where you can feel the food. I remember distinctly you and I our lives came together when you moved to New York. Yeah. And I met you when you came to Avoce. I remember at the time because uh, I you know was friends and knew the chef Andrew Carmelini who was at a voce right before you and he had a, a a little bit of a rough departure from the restaurant. I remember, you know, immediately hearing that Missy Robbins, executive chef of spiaggia's moving to New York and she's gonna take over the helm. And I thought, wow, this that's intimidating and tough. And you're coming to New York and the restaurant had a pretty good reputation already. It was I,
2: the hottest restaurant in the city. It was a hot a, spot. A, a, I mean it had opened a year before.
0: I was so intimidated because again, living in New York, we looked at spiaggia as this temple of, you know, the, the finest Italian food in, in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then this person I don't know is coming into the kitchen. And here I am. I'm a purveyor. I'm selling, you know, beautiful fruits and vegetables and truffles and other stuff. And I went in there uh, legitimately scared.
2: You were not scared. You're and, not the first person who said that.
0: To uh, me. And I met Missy and I found her to be very uh, inquisitive about the products which to me right away is a great sign Mm -hmm. for a chef. They're not just high and mighty coming in and saying, I know everything about everything. And I connect very well with chefs when they care about the product and there's a passion. It started a friendship and a professional, you know, business purveyor to chef relationship. And it's not to be understated. It was a huge challenge to step into that restaurant that had such success to see it grow and have multiple locations. And then I don't really know what happened, but then you were gone. (laughs) <laughs> and you, left New, you got, left New York.
2: No, no, I was in New York.
0: Well, you were around. I was
2: hiding. You were hiding? She was in hiding. Totally hiding. And Be- I, best year of my life. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say
0: about, you know, eight months after you'd left Devoche, I drove by the space and I was like, you know what? I need to call Missy and see what the hell is going on. And I remember I called your cell phone and you answered. I was like, okay. What, where are you and what are you doing? I've often wondered what was going on at that time because another year or so later, I think you said you were working on a restaurant. So you had some ideas. Was and- this when
1: you were working on Lily?
2: Well, so when I left Avoche, I had... Worked for 20 years. I was 42 at the time. I don't think I ever described it this way at the time, but I I was burnt out and I didn't know it. Avocet was a very intense place. I worked there for five years. It was a very intense environment, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to maintain Michelin stars. And I kind of just started to question things. Do I like the person I am? Do I like how I'm managing? Do I care about Michelin stars? Is this really important? Do I like the people I'm working with? Are these my long-term partners? Nothing specific happened. I made the decision to leave in a few ways, not the smartest thing I've ever done. Like I had saved a decent amount of money when when I was there and I was like, okay, I have enough to take a year off. I thought I was a workaholic and I was like, there's no way that I'll make it a year. The summer turned into the fall and I was still loving life. I was having a great time. I traveled to Italy in November. I came home for a week. I traveled to Asia for the first time for a month in December And when I got back, I was like, all right, it's a time to maybe think about starting to talk to people. I was getting phone calls and I was just like, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And then those phone calls stopped. And that was really scary because I'm like, "Okay, now I've told everyone I don't want to work. I've told everyone I'm not interested in a job. I didn't know if I wanted to cook or not. I really, really didn't. Like I was like, I don't. I don't even know if I want to be in this business. And then I was like, I'm going to be a consultant. That seemed glamorous. I wanted your job. I was like, <laughs> I w- i mean, so badly. I mean, if I could create a job. We all want John Magazine. Yes, job. I know. If I could create a job, I mean, I really thought, like, I, I want to travel the world and find the best products because that is like product day delivery time back when I was a young chef and the days that you would come in with porcini to a voce, Those those were my favorite moments in a kitchen. It wasn't necessarily the cooking. And if you look at my food now, it's about the product. It's not about some like crazy manipulation of it. It's about like, how good can I make that porcini or how good can I make that eggplant? I mean, I'm surprised I never even had a conversation with you about it because I, I really wanted that job. But to me, it was like a fantasy. I'm like, how do you get that job?
0: I probably um, discouraged you. I mean, there's a I lot. I think of, you
2: probably did.
0: Th- it's a glamorous job. And there's it, only I, one. And I've been very lucky,
2: though. <laughs> There's, but you've were, gone through tough times. Yeah, you had your pl- own company. Absolutely. You had, yeah, like, I yeah. get it.
0: And there was plenty of times where I was, listen, I was driving a delivery truck and going up and down stairs into restaurants in yeah. New York City at all hours of day and night. And,
2: and every job looks glamorous. Yes. My current job looks gra- glamorous. No job is as glamorous as it appears on the on the surface. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, I, and then I started talking to every restaurant. Then I was like, OK, I'm going to. I'm gonna just explore, and I and I started talking to, you know, the Danny Myers of the world and the Stephen Stars, and you know, there was some opportunity in some places, and there wasn't an opportunity in other places, and I was frustrated, and I was starting to get scared because I was like, oh my god, I like I gotta work, and over that time, I had developed a relationship with Sean Feeney, who is now my my business partner. He lived above me with his wife and and young daughter, um, in the same building, and. And we had lived there, like, a while, but we never really became friends. Like, we had started to become friends during sa- Hurricane Sandy, which he had invited me up to his apartment, and we drank Negronis, and he cooked dinner for me. He made bolognese, which I found to be a very bold move. Um, <laughs> and it was awesome. Uh, he still, to this day, I would say, probably makes better bolognese than I am uh, than I do. And we became friends, and he's a, you know, interested—he was in finance at the time, and he's a, interested— He likes to learn. You know, now that I know him, I'm like, oh my God, like the line of questioning makes so much sense now because I see him do it to like 400 people a day. And he would like ask me all these questions and... He was doing some consulting at the time for a restaurant group and like kind of f- hell, figuring out finances. So he'd like knock on my door and he'd be like, let's talk about food cost. And I'd be like, dude, I'm retired. I he was
0: interviewing as a future I was business like, partner. He
2: wasn't. And I was like, I don't want to talk about food cost. Like I left my job because I don't want to deal with food cost. And, but we would like have these conversations. And then when he becomes friends with someone, he's very protective of them. And he would ask me like, well, what kinds of deals are people offering you? And like, what's happening? He came to me out. Out of nowhere. He was on vacation and he was with, with his wife and his family in on vacation on a beach. And he texted me and was like, I, I have an idea. I, I'd like to become your business partner. And I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I was like, you don't know anything about restaurants. You're in finance. I need like a GM one guy to be my partner, right? Or a girl, or whoever. I was like, you're not, you're not my guy. And then he's like, well, why not? Here's what I think I can, I can offer, and how we can be great partners. And over like the course of about four months, we had a lot of serious conversations about like values what kind of company we would want, the kinds of companies we worked for before individually and how we would want to do those differently. And I finally said yes to him. And we started looking at spaces. And this was in like April 2014, I think. And we found Lilia, he told me to go to William. He said, hey, we had looked at like hundreds of spaces. It was like
0: an auto repair shop. Yeah,
2: and but we had looked at like so many spaces in Manhattan and he was very budget conscious. And I was like, oh, we paid so much rent at Avoce. That doesn't seem expensive, but it was. And he was really smart that way, even though he wasn't a restaurateur. He was like, I'm not going to open a business that doesn't have the right financials. And I really, to this day, appreciate that. Really, he taught me something very early on about running a both artistically successful business and a financially successful business and, and how those two can marry. Um, because most restaurants fail. I mean that's- Right. And the idea was not to fail. So he said like, hey, there's a space in Williamsburg. Can you go look at it? And I said, I'm not opening a restaurant. Much more expletive than that. I said, I'm not opening a restaurant in Williamsburg. Again, that goes back to the success thing. To me, success was not only opening in New York, it was in Manhattan and like in a 10 block radius of downtown Manhattan. I was so narrow minded. So I went to Williamsburg. I basically had no idea where I was. I walk in this place. There's a car. It's a functioning auto body space. And I was like, okay, this is a cool space. Like I have a big design mind and I, I get it. And I was like, I, I I can see this. And he's like texting me. How is it? How is it? And I was like, it's good. But I I like literally have no idea where I am. I don't know how to get home. And I
0: was <laughs> <Hilarious. laughs> like,
2: yeah, I was a, I was like an, an annoying Manhattan person who didn't spend a lot of time in Brooklyn. And um, again, we like had a lot of talks and we explored Williamsburg a lot. We would go on weekends, we'd walk around, we would try and understand who our clientele would be and is this viable? And can I open the caliber of restaurant that I want to here and whatever? And we just decided to go for it. I was like, what's the worst that can happen? Like we open, it doesn't work. I disappoint some people and I get a job. I had no idea really what would happen with Lilia. And we opened and we opened the doors. And I realized in that time that like, I didn't want to cook for reviews and Michelin stars, I wanted to cook for people. And I wanted people to come to that bar three times a week and have a bowl of pasta and a glass of wine and go home to their building across the street. And I was like, I'm gonna do it. And the first thing I posted this the other day on my Instagram that the first dish that I knew I wanted to cook was this rigatoni with with spicy red sauce. And I never put red sauce on the menu anywhere that I worked. And I was like, I'm going to do this. Either people are going to love it or they're going to hate it. And they're going to be like, what is she doing? And I did it. And I don't know. I just cooked what I wanted to eat. And I, I think don't- being
0: in that neighborhood gave you a little bit of that freedom to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You felt that hey you know what I'm a it little bit removed. It wasn't that. It now. was
2: really just me saying like you know what I opened Lilia right before my 45th birthday. I kind of was you like were just I, doing you. I was like I don't I don't care anymore. I just want to open a great restaurant. I want to open somewhere that's fun, that is serious, that has amazing service, great wine, great cocktails, that just cooks great food that's craveable. And I didn't even know what craveable meant. I knew that like I wanted a more stable menu that would have seasonal stuff coming in and out, but like then also have things like rigatoni red sauce or the malfadini with pink peppercorns that could always be there there was some method to it but it wasn't about williamsburg you know i'd been in this environment for 20 something years of like cooking for reviews or having to maintain or having to cook in in a box or cooking through tony's lens which was fine but like even a voce their mission was to have michelin stars and, and when you're cooking through that lens, instead of saying, like, I just want to cook food that people are going to like, you're cooking, like, to make it look a certain way. You're cooking to say, like, is that good enough to get a Michelin star? Now, to me, that's ludicrous. It's like ludicrous. And now when I do a dish and I'm like, does this taste good and does it look pretty? I still want the food to look pretty. I'm still, like, intent on things being in that zone of of strive for perfection. But, like, it's not. It's it's not about it. And I think when you do that, we ended up getting three-star reviews at both restaurants. Sean and I had never talked about, like in every other restaurant group I work in, oh, what do you want from the New York Times? Sean and I had never talked about, like, do we want two stars? Do we want three stars? It never even crossed my mind. I would have been very upset if, if, <laughs> if I got less than. Right. But, like, it wasn't something we talked about. And I think when you start doing what you like and when and you're happy and you build the team – and you're just cooking and showing hospitality, you end up getting the accolades. And that's what sort of happened for us.
0: I love it. Yeah. I want to segue back to beautiful food and also that ricotta toast that you do at Missy, because we have Morena Febo from Calabro Cheese on the line. And she's actually in Italy right now. Where, where are you?
3: I'm in Abruzzo currently. Oh. Um, I've uh, been doing a little bit of a tour of Italy, starting in Sardegna. Uh, Rome now in Abruzzo Uh, later on this evening I'll be in Penne and eventually I'm going to make my way north to Milan uh, Bolzano and Vicenza
0: must be nice to have a a private helicopter to jet you all over Italy On some kind of secret uh, ricotta tour. Is that what's going on? Exactly. How did you cover that well, many towns? Uh, one, in the-
3: one must do quality control.
0: Well, we've been talking about not just ricotta cheese today, but we've been talking
3: about Calabra ricotta.
1: Missy Excellent. is one of the largest users of Calabra
2: ricotta at the chef's
1: warehouse.
3: Yes. Uh, and I thank you very much, Missy, for your loyal following. Oh,
2: my God. I love it. I, I can't use anything else. Doesn't work.
0: And it turns out, and I just found out, you know, I knew she lived in Connecticut, but I didn't realize she lived probably uh, just a few miles from where Calabro started. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Calabro? I've tasted the cheese many times. I love it. But to hear someone like Missy Robbins talk about it with such reverence, you know, we have customers and chefs around the country, that there's nothing they will use but Calabro. What is so special about Calabro?
3: Calabro cheese uh, started... uh Almost 68 years ago, in 1953, uh, Joe Calabro uh, uh, came from Graniti, Sicily, which is the birthplace of uh, ricotta cheese, really. Ricotta, the word itself, means uh, to recook, right? So uh, normally what happens uh, when making mozzarella cheese, uh, you separate your curds and whey, and it is that way because uh, Italians don't want to waste anything. There are still solids in that. And if you recook that way, you can extract the rest of the cheese. What Calabro does differently is boils actual milk. So that's the reason why you have this very dairy forward, rich flavor. Uh, it's made in Big three hundred and fifty gallon kettles. The curds come to the surface. They're hand skimmed and then ladled into the individual tins. And they're hand skimmed for a reason, because the curds are very delicate when they come fluffy to the tops, and you want to maintain that. Because the more it's handled, if it was machine packed, you would lose the texture of that curds. So they're delicately ladled into individual tins, and those tins actually also have perforations on them, so that the the whey will continue to drain out. And it's all done really just to maintain the consistency of that cheese.
0: So this is still a very much an artisanal product. Very much so. It's very different Um, from what
1: you would find at the grocery store in like a tub. It's very dense and heavy. This is very light. And even when you're talking about it, it sounds like very romantic. I don't know. I'm picturing (laughs) scooping the curds out of the
3: pot. It's just it's so good. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a skill to it. Obviously, the difference between what you buy in the store in those plastic tubs is we don't add any artificial ingredients. There are no binders, no fillers. Normally, when you use all 100% whey, don't forget it's a waste product, right? So that whey is actually very grainy. And unless you then emulsify it and add binders to give it texture, it's just going to have a very sandy finish on your tongue. That's the main difference. The plastic tubs in the grocery store seem more like a cream cheese, uh, thicker consistency as opposed to the individual curds that you're going to see with our hand dipped
0: of Missy loves the packaging. It, it's really got a great look to it. Why the cone?
3: There's an interesting story behind it. Uh, when Mr. Calabro first started uh, making the cheese, back in 1953 when he first started, they would actually go out and, in those individual tins and just bust trays, right? So uh, like I said, those tins are perforated. Picture that going into the grocery store, it's on the shelf, it's uh, in the refrigerated section, but the tins are going to bleed out as the whey drains out of the bottom of the preparation. Naturally, the cheese is going to settle in the tin. Zia Lenora would come into the grocery store to grab her tin of you know, ricotta cheese and she would say or yell at the manager, hey, this isn't full. The manager would come over with, with a shut up scoop, basically, to top the top of the container so that the customer felt like they were getting their full one pound of cheese. That's cannot, awesome. So, <laughs> I had no
2: idea that that's why you packed it that way.
0: You cannot cheat yeah. the Italian Nona. She will not no, appreciate that. No, absolutely
3: not. She wanted her full container.
2: <laughs> can, can I ask a question that I've wondered for many years as I've used this cheese? It was relayed to me years ago when someone said, like, why is Calabro better or whatever? I don't know if I made this up or someone told me this but I've always said that it has a higher fat content than other ricottas. Is that true or is that just because of the milk naturally makes it that way?
3: Exactly right. That's the creaminess that you're tasting. There is going to be higher fat content simply because we're adding milk to it's not 100% whey. It's milk based. So it's naturally going to be creamier and it's going to have that silky texture in the mouth.
2: Great. I'm glad I haven't lied to hundreds of people over the last (laughs) 20 years.
0: You knew that palette knew. So what other products (laughs)
2: does Calabro make? You know, we
1: sell not just the ricotta. Obviously, it's the top item for you guys, but there's also Mm -hmm. mozzarella, burrata,
3: Sure, we have a full range Calabro makes fiore di latte, mozzarella, burrata, stracciatella. And recently, we've also now gone into the category of buffalo milk. We started sourcing buffalo milk and we make now fresh buffalo, mozzarella and ricotta on premise so that it gives you now extended shelf life. The difference between buffalo milk and cow's milk, buffalo milk has, like Missy stated too, a much higher fat content than regular cow's milk. So it results in a much creamier texture in the cheese and the final product.
1: Does the milk matter to Calabro? Are you working with specific dairies or farmers.
3: 100 percent. We only work with local dairies all within 100 miles of our East Haven facility. All of our milk is RBST free, gluten free and uh, also kosher, all of the ricotta.
0: What's really nice is the chef's warehouse has a great long history with Calabro. Missy is obviously a big devotee of the products, as are many chefs. And the nice thing about this product is you don't have to be a professional chef to find it. The product is available at Eataly markets around the country. They actually fly it into Los Angeles and Las Vegas and Texas and the New York and Boston stores. Central markets in Texas carries it. If you're in Brooklyn or, or wherever you are in the country, if you seek out an individual fine cheese shop or specialty food shop, there's a good chance you're going to find Calabro in that that market. Yes, um, so- Whole
3: Foods, uh, Stop and Shop, Shaws. Wow. Um, really, every major retailer does carry us. Obviously, not all full line, but in some capacity. kings, cheese All of them. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: Look at you. Well, Morena, thank you so much for coming on, joining us all the way from Italy.
1: Yeah. We appreciate your partnership as always. Thank you very much. Your amazing cheese. Thank and you. thank you so
0: much. And Missy, thank, thank you, thank you, for you too for yes. being on here. This oh, has been an incredible, you, uh, incredible time to talk to you. And you I learned a Brooklyn? lot. I think oh, Missy, I'll time. see you
3: in Brooklyn next. I hope so. Door. I hope so. Absolutely.
0: So Missy's got two incredible restaurants. Lilia and Missy, both in Williamsburg. You've even got a pop-up going on Governor's Island this summer? So
2: we have this specialty pasta food company, which is probably a whole other show. It's like my dream company. And we sell our pastas and sauces and all this cool stuff. Through that, we're doing this amazing thing on on Governor's Island that's through Labor Day. Four nights a week, we cook for 12 people a night. We bring you on a boat. We have this beautiful, beautiful setup. We have one live live fire. That's it. Three chefs and a, a team of servers. It's honestly been the happiest I've been in a long time.
0: You've got a book coming out. I Missy, do. We, you know, we were talking about ricotta cheese today. Mm-hmm. We could also talk to you about fresh pasta, pasta and pasta making because...
2: I did just write a book on it with my fiance, Tali Baiocchi, is actually the writer. And I mean, she deserves most of the credit. I just have a lot of the information and recipes. <laughs> but we're really excited. A three-year project that got delayed a little because of COVID. We talked a lot about the Italian-American New Haven thing. And we have a whole Italian-American section in there. It sort of tells the journey of my life through pasta. So... We have Italian American. We have a whole pasta making illustrated section of how to make shapes and how to make dough properly and all that. And then it goes into a whole regional thing from north to south. And then it goes into what we call modern classics, which are sort of like my dishes from Spiaggia days to now. It comes out October 12th. So we're, we're awesome.
0: really excited
2: about it. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. Uh, of
1: course. It's been we thank are honored, incredible. Thank you. As
0: always. Super yeah. fun. Thanks again. Right. Thank
1: Thanks, you guys. This episode is sponsored by Calabro. Cheese, a line of artisanally made cheeses from East Haven, Connecticut. The products are favorites among top chefs and available through the chef's warehouse for restaurant professionals and can be found at your local specialty store. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Ingredient Insiders, where chefs talk. Like what you hear? Write us a review and follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.